0: In the original Legend of Zelda game on the original Nintendo Entertainment System, there's this weird moment in level seven. First, you're pretty excited to have found level seven at all. You randomly have to blow your whistle next to this lake to make the water disappear. But then you're in and you move forward and suddenly you're stopped. A bad guy is sitting there, not attacking you, but also not letting you pass. All he says is grumble, grumble. If you had your trusty issues of Nintendo Power with you, you knew that you could have bought a chunk of meat earlier in the game, which you can give this bad guy, thus appeasing him and letting you pass. But that's not the point I want to make right now. Right now, I'm interested in the emotional trajectory of Zelda at this point. Things are going well. You've beaten six of the nine levels. You have a powerful sword and tons of hearts. And then all of a sudden, you're blocked. No explanation. No help. Grumble, grumble. Today's episode of Plugs Play Pedagogy focuses on those moments of grumbling. That's right, this is episode 5, Grumble Grumble, The Pitfalls of Gaming Pedagogy, the second of a two-part episode on gaming in the classroom. Once again, I'm joined by co-editor Stephanie Vai, Associate Professor of Writing and Rhetoric at the University of Central Florida. If you heard our previous episode, you heard lots of specific advice about using games in the classroom. Like Mario, we leapt together from orange mushroom to orange mushroom, hearing idea after idea for how to use games for good. So if you're like drooling for more of that, let me start this episode with one more awesome specific idea, a non-grumbly idea to get us started on the foot of, man, that's so much awesome stuff I could do it's from my co-editor stephanie herself
1: i've largely used games in my professional and technical writing classroom and the way that i incorporate them is through the genre of the walkthrough let me explain when i first started teaching professional writing i knew that i wanted students to work on writing effective instructions among other things i teach this class with a rhetorical foundation and i don't just focus on static genres but i still find that having students write instructions is incredibly valuable It's something that seems so simple, but until you actually try to write up a procedure and then go through user testing, well, that's when you figure out how complex instructional documents really are. At first, I struggled to find a way to teach instructions from a rhetorical standpoint in a way that would be interesting and even fun for students. It wasn't until I thought about game walkthroughs that everything snapped into place. I gathered up multiple games, loaded them on our classroom computers, and asked student groups to write instructions for one level or segment of their game. They played things like Quake, Half-Life, Metal Gear Solid, and Tomb Raider, and they eventually conducted usability testing with another group by switching their walkthroughs and attempting to play through another group's level. This really hammered home the rhetorical context of their composing. What made sense to them, of course, didn't always translate into easy understanding for their audience. They made assumptions about what their intended users already knew, like they would already know how to use the controls or how to save. And they didn't always know where the other players would get stuck, have questions, or get frustrated, and then they had to revise to make their instructions clearer or more explicit. The students and I learned so much through this initial playthrough, which helped me immensely the next times I incorporated walkthroughs into my classroom. In fact, I've learned so much about facilitating this assignment that I've since published on the subject. So you can read my article, Tech Writing, Meet Tomb Raider, in Volume 5, Issue 2 of the journal E-Learning and Digital Media, and it talks about some of the challenges of having student groups work on game walkthroughs. I'm also writing a companion piece for the journal Syllabus, which should hopefully be out early next year. So I guess my word of advice for anyone interested in bringing games into their pedagogy is that games are fun, but games can also be messy. So be willing to say, I don't know, and be willing to try new things. To play through your classroom like you'd play through a new level of game. You can always write your own classroom walkthrough later.
0: Stephanie's point about games being messy is a useful bridge into this episode, where we dig a bit more into the grumbly mess of gaming pedagogy, but still with lots of practical ideas. Really, both episodes bleed together in a lot of ways. Last time, for example, we heard associate professor of English at Purdue University, Samantha Blackman, bring up some of the deeper issues that gaming has helped her discuss in her classes. Here she is talking about the time she asked her students to play the game Bastion, and there are spoilers for the game.
2: But you are forced to play as this kind of um, uh, this the character that's just called the kid, um, who's playing through, according to his point of view, which you don't realize until the very end that holy crap I've just played through this entire game as the colonizer going through and killing this indigenous population that you know was billed to me as the bad guys but what they were just trying to do was rebuild their world so this kind of occurs to you at the end and there were people in that class that were really pissed at me that I had made them play this game because they were like you made us you made us colonizers and I'm like Okay, I'm sorry, but do you get what's going on here? So, But we were able to have that conversation, and they didn't expect to experience it firsthand and to feel anything about the way that they experienced it.
0: That's right. Games are complicated. Partly because, as Sam points out, they make us feel and experience things immediately. But for lots of other reasons, too. In the remaining minutes of the show, we're going to dig into some of the underlying assumptions of the social and political spaces that games occupy. We'll get there through two main chunks. First, with an interview that Stephanie and I had with Rebecca Schultz-Colby and Richard Colby. And second, with another interview Stephanie and I conducted with Jennifer DeWinter. Finally, we'll close the episode with what might be the first ever scholarly discussion of video games prompted in part by watching someone play NES Games Live interview thingy. Crazy, I know. But first, let's start with. Part 1 Wow, games are complicated. As I said, we'll first hear an interview with Rebecca Schultz-Colby and Richard Colby, lecturers at the University of Denver, where they teach courses on writing, rhetoric, research methods, and video games. They're also co-editors with Matthew S.S. Johnson of the 2013 book, Rhetoric, Composition, Play Through Video Games, which has 14 awesome chapters of topics of avatars, pedagogy, the writing process, gender, fandom, and even grammar. Stephanie and I spoke with them especially about their unique ways of using World of Warcraft in the classroom.
3: I'm Rebecca Schultz-Colby, and basically Richard and I developed the World of Warcraft class together. Um, well, it all started, we, we started playing World of Warcraft when it first came out, and we were both working on our dissertations. So as you can imagine, you know, World of Warcraft became kind of the space for me to work out problems in my writing process. So if I was like having a really frustrating day um, writing, I would just like log on and play World of Warcraft. (laughs) And that actually helped me like kind of think through the issues in my argument or whatever I was like blocked on because it would it would relax me and put me in this like, you know, zone while I'm killing mobs. And so and then that helped me think, you know, well how could I use this? This is kind of a creative space. How could I use this to teach writing and so it started like me kind of thinking about it um and i was aware of all that great um online research um that like TL Taylor Taylor's doing all that ethnographic research with online spaces. And so, you know, Second Life, um, World of Warcraft, EverQuest, et cetera. So I was like, well, you know, how could you bring that into a classroom? Um, And I've always been fascinated with using massively multiplayer online role playing games um, to, you know, study identity in the classroom or, you know, just using that in some way in the classroom. So then, in our program, um, we were very whack focused for one of our sections of, um, and it's a first-year writing whack class. So, and we basically introduced students to the three research traditions, which you know, qualitative research, quantitative research, and then writing with text, analyzing text. So then we decided, what if you know, World of Warcraft was actually a research space, and what would happen, and and then we could actually. Do research with this actual community and then even write for this community in some ways. So I think we got a little bit too um, euphoric, utopic about it, like thinking, oh, you know, the World of Warcraft audience will love our students who want to write for their, you know, online spaces. Not really. So, um, but it's still a great, we have students, you know, conduct research. And then they write the research as like an actual researcher writing an academic article. But then they have to rewrite their research in some way for on a World of Warcraft forum. So and that is actually a great reflective moment for them as students, because sometimes they nobody likes their stuff and they, they make, you know, really Stupid mistakes and then they get corrected and they get their grammar corrected and you know so and then sometimes people really take their research seriously and love it so it's like it, it ends up being a reflective moment where they you know they really reflect on how they could have reached the audience better you know what they did well what they could have done better so that's actually it actually works out well but it's not what we envisioned so originally <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, well and, and I'm struck by 're you're, you're telling me the the way that this fits so naturally into the course i i think I think if I were um, proposing a a games and rhetoric class here i I think I would feel very like uh oh um I have to be really defensive I have to convince you that games aren't totally crazy and and the way you just said it it sounds you know of, of course we're we're introducing them to these various kinds of research and mm-hmm. and by the way how we how we identify ourselves through through our text, through our communication, through our avatars is, is all is all part of that. Like there's there's no, it doesn't sound like there's a disconnect when you explain it. Right. I like that.
1: Well, and something else really interesting about what you were just talking about, Rebecca, was that the students are interacting with an actual audience that doesn't always love everything that they're doing. It sounds like you know yes. a real audience that may respond positively or may respond negatively, or may not even respond at all. And you know, it seems like that's, again, a a sort of, I hate to use the word authentic, but a a sort of authentic way of having students understand writing beyond just the the walls of academia, and to see that we can't control when we're communicating with others how our communication is going to be, uh, you know, responded to by those individuals. So it seems like there's lots of really great opportunity, and I'm sure you do this in your class, about talking about interacting with already existing communities online and sort of the ethics of researching with or in or about particular communities and all that just spurring from you know a game that you played as relaxation. It's <laughs> fascinating how you can go from something that's simple in a way to these really complex and very important issues for
3: students.
0: And and bouncing off of that, do do the students know that you're your fans or the students know that you play it. Oh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I figured. yeah. Like, how, how could they not? <laughs> but, but, I, but I wonder if that's, I wonder if there's something valuable there in kind of in, in reminding students, showing them, hey, by the way, that stuff in your life that you think might be totally separate from your academic interests actually intersects with the stuff we're talking about. I mean, this, this stuff matters.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's going back to your um, earlier observation, Kyle, about um, how, how it sort of fits in with what is going on in, the, in, in another class, right? Rhetoric and all those other things. And I think when you talk to non-gamers, they think of gaming, some of them think of gaming in a very one-dimensional way, gaming as a pastime. And they don't realize not only the powerful communities that surround gaming um, and the academic research around those communities, but uh, just how, uh, important um, writing and rhetoric are to those communities, whether they're acknowledged or not. Um, and so, it, it's 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 once you present all the paratexts of gaming and gaming itself and the writing that goes on and the rhetoric of gaming, it's it, it becomes a, a real legitimate way to teach um, a writing class and a rhetoric class. So,
1: now I know I asked this question in my email earlier, and. I always like to ask people who teach with games, you know, we, we love them. We're like, (laughs) we're like, Hey guys, you're going to be doing something really cool. But what have you found in terms of maybe challenges or, um, have you encountered student resistance to teaching with games?
3: Um Yes, um, there's my dream student who loves the game and is actually really engaged in the class and so is A a good student and B loves the game and loves playing it. And fortunately, I always I'm fortunate I always get a few of those students. but then I get my two least favorite students are the students who are so into the game. <laughs> that they don't have time for the school side you know writing their papers doing their research um but they want to raid or a pvp um and then there's the other student who kind of blows it off and is just like oh this you know this is just about games and this isn't serious um and then they they don't actually play the game they just like ask a really banal question about you know gaming addiction or you know they over stereotype the community which bugs me like oh they're all like hugely addicted and they don't have any social lives and so they ask a really loaded question on the forums and then that's their research and I I hate that.
4: Rebecca sort of mentioned sort of utopic vision of the class versus the class enacted but you should we should have seen it coming but it is a sort of a post-colonial moment. It's at that moment of having students in, invade the community. And even if they're part of that community, they weren't necessarily um, participating in the ways that we they were prior to the class. So that they come in, they say, hey, I did this research. This is what I found. And people are like, who are you? We didn't ask for this, right? <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's it's and it's been a, a moment for us to think about our own teaching and especially not just not just about games, but in other things that we ask our students to do outside of the classroom, whether it's research or writing, and thinking about those moments where, yes, I'm coming into your community to do this research or writing, but um, I didn't ask for this, right? <laughs> and how do you negotiate those 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 strategies? And um, I think that's still a work in progress, but it's a great, great learning experience.
3: Yeah, learning. Yeah.
0: And I, I know that in some research I've done in in other fan communities not related to gaming, I've I've been warned pretty strongly that I, I should play it safe. That there are some people who are 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 used you know, um, fan fiction authors, for instance, who are who are used to being written about as kind of weirdos with with um, odd things that they do and very very defensive about about not needing to explain to some outsider. Um, do you do you ever run into that? Has has there ever been the the a hyper-articulate warning from the gamer who says, S- keep your research out of here? Is, is that a fair um, question?
3: <laughs> yes. Alakazam hates us. <laughs> yes. They, and if if our students say we are students or we are, you know, DU students, like, they will just take down the post. Right. Like, it's, so it really it, it puts me in a really ethical dilemma as a researcher because I want students to be, you know, ethically transparent about their research. But on the other hand, I'm very sensitive to the fact that they're in this community. And so, and they're writing for gamers. So I kind of negotiate that by, I have them try to introduce their identity as a gamer. And Mm -hmm. if they are gamers, then that works really well, but Mm -hmm. it's still like ethically ambiguous because they're also doing research. Um,
4: And I've gotten uh, angry emails from uh, forum moderators, um, and uh, the university actually got a, a spam <laughs> request from uh, a, a forum moderator who was upset. So um, ultimately, those things worked out positively um, in working with moderators. But it's one of those things that it happens, you know.
3: Yeah, so, like, can you email them? Oh, yeah, yeah, and- well, yeah. yeah.
4: It all gets worked out. But it's, it's once again, learning experience about how, negotiating with these online communities that exist and have a... a you know, a community that you're entering.
1: That's really interesting. I've never had my students sort of integrate themselves into communities in such a way that they've pissed off the forum moderator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really see that happening, you know, very easily because I participate in the ret comp subreddit, for example, and somebody came in the other day and posted a bunch of questions that were very clearly like, I'm doing this research for my class and so on. And I just thought, who are you? And yeah, have I ever seen you before? Have you ever posted anything before? And it was that moment of like, oh yeah, you know, this is what it's probably like when we send our students out and we ask them to do research in a space where people feel very connected to that space and that they formed an identity around this space. So yeah, again, it's, it's really fascinating kind of the, the ethical, um, you know, elements that go into something so seemingly simple as bringing games into the class or researching about games.
4: Specifically. Right.
0: You know. And I, and I love that your answer has, has partly exactly what I think is, is the right answer is, is not just going in observing and then taking the conversation away, but actually bringing the conversation into the forums that they we're, we're not hiding, we're not hiding what we're finding. We want to engage you in this conversation. And that, that seems to be at least to me off the top of my head answer number one like
1: yeah that seems more of a a giving back to the community in some way sort of approach yeah which seems better than just taking what you have to give (laughs)
4: yes yeah
0: Yeah. yeah. well i i know you two are are researchers in this area too have you have you done research like this that you ask your students to do? do you do you um Actually, use Wow as a as a research space, or or um, what what kind of work have you done in in this area?
4: Well, um, yeah, we I guess you can separate our work into teaching work, and um, we uh, we've written teaching work, sort of theorizing the class, um, and then I also did we did a, a, a article for an edited collection about that somehow forthcoming in the future about <laughs> argument about argument strategies in online forums uh, and looking at uh, how people in the gaming community sort of situate themselves in an argument. Um, and then we um, sort of looked at how that, you know, how, how those work out. But, I mean, I, I think there's, I, I don't know, I'd like to do more work on that. So yeah. most of it's pedagogical work. I know Rebecca has. Yeah.
3: Yeah, we were looking at specifically the World of Warcraft forums yeah. and how trolling how trolling actually works as an argumentative rhetorical device and then and how it functions in the World of Warcraft forums at least. But and then and my whole argument was that trolling actually is fairly banal in the World of Warcraft forums because Blizzard's so engaged. I was I, my theory was that it actually trolling happens because the in some ways the the game designers are disengaged and so that it's like a way of creating re- rhetorical action and, and to get a response from the community so but i don't know well hopefully it'll come out sometime. yeah <laughs> so <laughs> where is that one
1: supposed to come out
4: uh, um, doug iman's working on a collection so
1: yeah for oh yeah okay. perler
3: press i think yeah
1: so and rebecca so Talk a little bit about the research project that you're expanding on that you did some preliminary work on last semester, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, um, for computers and writing. I just did a really informal kind of Facebook survey. So um, looking basically at how teachers you know, in ret comp use games. But because I get annoyed <laughs> by um, the use of gamification so broadly in our field as well this is what we do with gaming pedagogy and it's like how we're using games though is a lot more thoughtful Um, and it really does engage critical thinking at you know at all levels i think whereas i think you know gamification as as business at least how business people use it is this this kind of rote exercise you know pointification really so, you just want people to click on, and you know it's it, and that 's not what we 're doing so we're not we 're not just i think school itself is so gamified, so you know it 's all about accruing credits or points to reach your objective, which is you know getting your degree and it, you know it's, it's enough of a game that I think we don't really need to gamify our our classrooms further and so usually how people and what I discovered in my research is how how people use games is really to engage critical thinking in, in deeper levels and elicit and engagement, but in, in ways that you use critical thinking.
0: And, and I feel like I, I just barely dip into this, this scholarship on on rhetoric and teaching and gaming, but I, I, I have read Ian Bogost criticizing the, the term gamification for the same reasons you're saying, right? Over, overdone. I, I know both of you have talked about using Bogost in your class, right? Yes. How, yeah. does, how does that go? Is it? I, I've I've used the first chapter of Persuasive Games before, and and I always get the like, oh my goodness, this is so hard. Why are we reading? That? <laughs> but, it's, but it's just the first chapter,
4: right? I yeah, I think I introduce it really just as a, an additional rhetorical domain, and by it I'm talking about procedural rhetoric. And as far as procedural rhetoric as a concept, um, it's been around in some forms, but uh, I really like the way he um uh. Ian Bogus talks about procedural rhetoric. And so when I talk about domains, it's procedural rhetoric, text, textual rhetoric, visual rhetoric, and oral or audio rhetoric. Um, and so that when I present it to the students, that it's another domain to work with, and that they don't have to just think of games as only the thing that has procedural rhetoric, that other things have procedural rhetoric as well. Uh, when you think about rules and requirements and those types of things, what does that say about the world? Uh, So in introducing it to the class, the class is a first-year writing class, but it is an introduction to rhetoric, and so procedural rhetoric sort of fits in there, um, I think, fairly well, and students understand the concept by the end of the class. Um, As far as fitting it in uh, practically, uh, they not only analyze how procedural rhetoric work in games through uh, doing a game review assignment, uh, they also... um, uh, they have to create a game at the end of the class, um, and by game it's really a proof of concept. so some students will create a full blown game spending on their programming skills. I've had Xbox games before I've had you know flash games before, but they also do PowerPoint games and sort of hypertext games, um, but they they're really asked to think about the procedural rhetoric of the game in in it being in its persuasive qualities and it can't just be you know a, a bejeweled clone match three game that you know now you're going to be matching uh pencils pens and paper uh yeah it doesn't that's the, as far as procedural rhetoric of that game it's uh it, there's, there's not much to it
1: we had a really interesting conversation yesterday with sam blackman where she talked about her students also making games and she said she also gets a lot of um analog games where students will make board games and so on do you have many students take the non-digital option when they're creating their games
4: well this that's that's a great question because this year i 'm going to you know not only allow them but encourage them to do uh, card games and board games. Um, I just think there's been um, there's been a really great resurgence in board games recently and when you think about procedural rhetoric i I like the fact that specifically a lot of games from europe are are taking uh, that idea of procedural rhetoric, without necessarily stating it, and doing new game strategies, and new game rules, and it's not just games of chance or games like you know Ameritrash games like Monopoly and the like, um, but it's games um, like you know Agricola and those types of games that are a little more complex. But if I get if I can get students to think through procedural rhetoric in a board game and not just do Shoots and Ladders clones, uh, maybe <laughs> maybe maybe be uh, it's going so it'll be this year, it'll be my first year to to do that.
0: To hear more from Rebecca Schultz, Colby, and Richard Colby, check out Rhetoric Composition play through video games. You won't regret it. Now it's time for Part two: Why are we afraid of play? As I said earlier, Stephanie and I also talked to Jennifer DeWinter, assistant professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. With Ryan M. Moeller, Jennifer recently co-edited Computer Games and Technical Communication, Critical Methods and Applications at the Intersection, where you'll find chapters on game manuals, gender and sexuality, ethics, narrative, fandom, privacy, pedagogy, and more. Plus, you'll find chapters by four of the people you heard in the previous episode of this podcast, which is partly a coincidence and partly evidence of how mutually awesome we both are. Come on, let's admit it. Here's Jennifer DeWinter.
5: I direct the Professional and Technical Communication Program at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, but I'm also affiliated faculty with the Interactive Media and Game Development Program, and so I teach game development and game design over there, as well as media theory and game theory. Um, And so... I've been using games to teach in classrooms and also building games for learning purposes for 10 years now. Holy. Awesome. I tend to be very careful about how I bring games into classrooms and, uh, and even making the decision whether or not to bring games into the classroom because I think oftentimes we ignore all the things in which games teach that we have no control over um, anywhere, anything from hardware uh, to consumer capitalism, uh, to certain ideological stances that you need to take. And we tend to focus on how people talk to one another in a game. And, and we, we tend to focus on literate practices that we're more trained to see, and we, we ignore uh, much more uh, imbricated ideological relationships that are in games. Uh, and So I'm always very hesitant to bring games in wholesale without spending a lot of time talking about what it is that we might be getting out of this game uh, that's manipulative, that's conditional, that might even be quotidian, uh, that has nothing to do with literate practices we're used to
3: teaching.
1: That is, <clears throat> that is a very Cindy Self sort of approach about thinking about how games or really any technology is imbricated in this sort of ideological setting where, yeah, again, like, bring a game into a classroom, you're bringing more than just the game into the classroom.
5: I feel like most people are very afraid of video games, and so in order to try and make sense of games in this sort of modernist rationality, we're trying to turn games into... Uh, games for education or serious games or gamification, games for training purposes, right? Like games that serve productive purposes because we fear play. We fear the unproductive and possibly revolutionary opportunities that play and games present. And so I often talk about the ways in which we think that all of that training and all of that education can be controlled in the message. And yet – when we go back to some of the earliest examples of consciously manipulating games for educational purposes, uh, in 1994, uh, one, one of the – I'm blanking on his name, but a, an important person from Microsoft came out in the Wall Street Journal post and said, yeah, we, we packaged Solitaire and Minesweep with Windows 95, not because we thought we wanted to teach people – how to play Solitary Mindscape, we needed to teach people how to use the mouse. And so within this this whole sort of game-playing experience in which the interface is doing things and which uh, our our cultural context is doing things, none of that mattered. What mattered was hardware training uh, and hiding hardware training and, and the difficulties and challenges of hardware training under the guise of something fun. And the fact that games can be used in this way means that we are we are ethically obligated to consider what it is that all of this probably hides. And so there are uh, game studios out there that turn HR training into solitaire games, that every solitaire card has an HR training fact on it. Uh, And trying to make something as simple as solitaire into productive time
0: so interesting. And I play a lot of solitaire, but I don't, I don't think I play it like that. I don't.
1: <laughs> but do I, you ever feel like when somebody's looking at you and you're playing a game, like I play a lot of mobile games on my iPad, let's say, do you ever feel as though, you know, someone's judging you in terms of, oh, you're not doing anything productive. You're, you're wasting some time. There couldn't possibly be anything scholarly about that. Cause it's really interesting. I mean, I do a lot of work with, both games and social media. And I I do a lot of work in the overlap between those two with socially networked games. And those are two technologies that many people think are waste of time, are unproductive, are not scholarly. And it frustrates me to no end because, like Jennifer's been talking about here, I sort of resist this idea that, okay, so there's either unproductive games or there are educational smart games, or games that will help us be productive or move us towards some kind of goal. Why this binary? You know, why can't the supposed not productive gameplay that I'm engaged in also help me towards some sort of critical end? Which I think you certainly can. Like a lot of the work that I've been doing with um, <clears throat> Candy Crush Saga and other socially networked games, has been talking with people about, here are all the things that you may not be considering when you look at a game that on the surface looks really simple and sweet, you know, here's this little matching game, but actually there's a lot of, uh, you know, capitalism embedded in this game. There's a lot of surveillance and privacy issues embedded in this game. We start thinking about privacy policies in terms of service in games. There's all this stuff in the background that we might not necessarily be thinking of, and none of that has anything to do with gamification. And none of that has anything to do with, you know, serious games, per se.
5: Well, it comes down to that, that point that Hoisinger makes. And, and, you know, I, I know that Hoisinger, every once in a while, becomes the whipping boy of people. Uh, but he's, his book, Homo Ludens, is really quite brilliant because he's trying to come up with a theory of play in culture not necessarily games, and we tend to conflate the two. Playing games are not the same thing, right? Uh, And so he's trying to come up with a a theory of playing culture, and that he talks about play being deadly serious, Uh, that what gets at stake at play, uh, people put a, a lot of energy, a lot of social capital, a lot of cultural capital into play, and a lot of monetary capital. And he also talks about the ways in which we at work will turn work into games, right? Talking about sales competitions that you automatically form with your friends or publishing competitions or whatever sort of competitive spirit that tends to happen in which you create in your brain within a group of people what what the constraints and rules are in and around that play. It reminds me of Shigeru Miyamoto, who's a big designer in video games, works for Nintendo, designed Donkey Kong, designed Super Mario Brothers, Legend of Zelda. Uh, when he was asked in an interview whether or not he was going to design educational games, he said, no, that's that's not the purpose of games and play. Like, other people can go do that. Play is very important to the human psyche, and I'm going to build games for play. And that is my that is my core expertise, and that is what I see as the potential and joy of designing computer games.
0: And and I find myself I find myself loving that. I you know I get I get excited at the idea that that yes, I I don't have to feel bad if I'm if I'm um, playing Minesweeper and people walk by my window and, and see what I'm doing. Um, on the other hand, I'm I'm going back to the classroom. I'm thinking of of how how much I feel like. My training and my my um, even my inclination is to be as as focused as possible, and to make every everything have a clear objective. Right? That's that's all about kind of hyper assessments that we we always have to make everything fit into an objective that we can state and identify. And and sometimes uh, I I can imagine people saying that well that that deep real human psyche need for play. Um, isn't something to work into your class. That's something that you should let people do do otherwise. What do we do with that?
1: You know, the the sort of, like, do we bring the games into the classroom and will students respond to it in the way that we want? I mean, I do a lot of creative activities in my classroom, including using games and including, uh, like, right now, my students in professional technical writing are playing with Legos. And, you know, there's this conflict between the students are really excited about that idea. Like we get to play around, we get to enjoy ourselves, et cetera. But are we learning something? But at the end, they always, always say, that was so much more helpful for me than if you had just asked me to write instructions for something kind of boring or, you know, not interesting because I'm going to remember it. And I think that there's something to the kinesthetic aspect of it, like to play, Whether you're playing with Legos or you're playing a game, you are involved in it physically. And so on the one hand, you've got sort of the the muscle memory recall that you can go to. You can remember where you were and what you were doing. and, And hopefully you're enjoying yourself at the same time. But also, yeah, I mean, why does everything in education have to be about assessment? And I say this as somebody who appreciates assessment and who understands its value, But at the same time, it's a balance thing, you know? It's like if all I'm ever doing is thinking about how I'm meeting outcomes and I'm assessing what my students have done. And, you know, in Florida right now, we have this sort of strange assessment goal where we have to track and see if our students are becoming graduates and getting jobs in Florida. And it's a bad thing if they leave Florida, even though they got a job. They didn't get a job and stay here. So I mean, there's just this frustration that I have right now with a kind of narrowly defined idea of what education should be and what education must be. And and a lot of times it does seem to work against giving students and even teachers the space to try something, to do engaging, creative things. Because if it's not immediately apparent, what is the purpose of this thing? People get really wary, I guess.
5: Well, and I think with I think <clears throat> a super broad and interesting question that you've asked, and, I'm, and Stephanie, I really liked your response. I think with games, uh, okay, so here's my shot in the dark. I think that we've been trained to understand how other forms of media trans, translate information in meaningful and purposeful ways. And so we have literature classes, which we're all required to take in gen ed and history courses and these these other courses that are book based. And it trains us how to use books in a classroom, not only as students, but also as teachers. And so there's whole, this entire script around that. Uh, we've also got a fairly long history now of using movies in classes and movie clips in classes. And how do you use those in order to talk about and begin to 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 engage with the world around us. Again, these are media that convey information in very particular ways. Same with visual information. We know the PowerPoint system, we know how to put data up there, we know how to put pictures up there, we know how to bring them in our classroom. I think the, one of the challenges with games is that we've got a generation of scholars that are coming out and games are, are being recognized more and more as a very important psychological force, cultural force, economic force and we know that these are important forces but we don't quite know how to bring them into our classroom because we've never been a student in which they have been successfully brought into the classes. So we're not able to iterate on our previous experiences and also iterate via professional development opportunities on how to bring them into our classrooms. And so what we try to do is translate our joy of having these games in non-professional settings, into the classroom, and that we run into hiccups and bumps every once in a while in doing so. Um, and so, I think some of it is just—it's not having a vernacular in and around games as educational tools, both as content deliverers, but also as objects of study. Um, and I. I think that we're a ways away from doing that for obvious reasons, right? We, we need literature. We need research. We need, we need the trial and error. We need to be able to share that. But I think in addition to that, it's expensive to bring games into the classroom, and it's disruptive to bring games into the classroom. Uh, you know, in order to bring Super Mario Brothers into the classroom, I either have to do so through an emulator or go out and buy an old NES system with, the controllers and with the game, and I have to find the computer that has the correct hookup for it, and I have to roll it all in, and then I can only accommodate one to two people versus a video which I can accommodate hundreds of people at one time, right? So I think that there are a series of, of very real material challenges in and around bringing games into the classroom meaningfully. Um and then we, we don't have a vocabulary in and around the assessment of games. What are we trying to assess when we play games? Are we trying to assess whether or not they can discuss play? Are we trying to assess whether or not they're representing uh, history correctly or not? Are we trying to assess the type of experiences that get embodied into play? And then I think on top of all of that, play undermines seriousness, like true play undermines seriousness, not controlled play, not everyone we're going to play this moment. And then we're going to talk about what it means and we're all going to come to consensus about it, but play in like this sort of carnival-esque, everyone kind of comes to it and, and kind of the trickster mentality comes out so that you can see through playing and through the carnival, what the structures are, why the structures are important and what parts of the structures are not important.
1: Now I want to hear you do the Super Mario Brothers thing.
0: don't don't worry there there will definitely be super mario brothers music edited in right at the perfect moment this 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 american life is going to be like oh my goodness this is the most amazing thing we've ever heard
1: Are, are you saying that our version of super mario brothers theme song was not the best one that you've ever ever heard
0: no, that's that's exactly what I was saying. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what you heard. <laughs> to read more of Jennifer DeWinter's work, check out Computer Games and Technical Communication, Critical Methods and Applications at the Intersection. And if you're like, man, what a cool interview. I wish there was a playful way for me to hear more from Jennifer, Kyle, and Stephanie, you're in luck because we're moving on to Part 3, Let's All Play Along. Okay, in this final segment, we're going to close with an experiment in scholarly gaming podcasting. At the end of the conversation between me, Stephanie, and Jennifer, I opened up an emulator on my computer, and I started playing NES games live over our Google Hangout. I played whatever games seemed appropriate, and they watched me, and they talked about what they saw. We let those games take the conversation wherever the games took us in a totally unscripted way. So my advice to you is to listen to both layers of sound here. Pay attention to our interesting thoughts, of course, because we're really smart, but also listen to the sounds of the music, of the sound effects. Let them affect you in whatever way they do. I mean, for me, these sound effects and musical tracks are dripping with nostalgia. They color the ideas we're talking about in a way that mysteriously seems to be more than just simple background music. They, they change my connection to the whole package. I started playing one of my favorites, Adventures of Lolo. What we're seeing here is the, the classic. Bad guy is taking the girl away. Good thing we have Lolo to go save her. <laughs> um, I've never played this. I, game. And I thought of it partly because, because of an emotional history. Because this is a game that I remember connecting with a friend over, where we could sit down in the same room, and we both felt equally involved. It didn't matter who had the controller. It it was more of a, it it was more we could talk about it together. So, this just
1: makes me feel like I want to go plug in my NES and play Zelda this weekend. And I have so much work to do. But there is something really soothing about old-school, like, 8-bit music and these blocky graphics and these, you know, simple but really enjoyable games.
5: It's interesting how you kind of introduced it that this was the game that it didn't matter if you were playing, your friend was playing, because it was enjoyable for both of you, and I'm going to plug for myself again because I'm dirty this way. Uh, I just finished writing a book on Shigeru Miyamoto for the influential game designer book series with Bloomsbury Press. Um, and Miyamoto comes out and says uh, that game designers, and and again, this is his philosophy, right? So this is the era in which Miyamoto is really kind of shaping the game industry in many ways. Um, He says that... uh, you, you have to consider the, the watcher, the audience as well, right? The people who are not playing, but are standing around watching. And uh, that he had particularly interesting training in this because he started designing for arcade games first, right? His first game that he designed was Donkey Kong. And that the challenge for designing arcade games and eventually the challenge that became for designing video games not PC based games is that you have to consider that there is a non playing audience there and it has to be enjoyable for them to watch it as well and if it's not uh, it's not going to be a successful game because games are necessarily social and that this was so true in fact that when he designed Zelda which is arguably an individual very intense experience with the game and you, you don't about with anyone there's no two-player mode he designed it to be a social game because he wanted people to get stuck and talk to each other and share their experiences in the world and share strategies and there's all this evidence that they did
0: and that's my memory of of playing zelda back in the day it was was oh my goodness this is the hardest thing ever i have no idea what i'm supposed to do and and then you, you talk it through someone says wait a minute what about over there don't you remember that place it's, it's too much to hold in your mind at once mm-hmm.
1: And thinking about the social aspect too, you know, you're playing Donkey Kong right now, and it's funny because you have a movie like The King of Kong, and you yeah. think, how interesting is it going to be to watch somebody play Donkey Kong? Mm. That's such an engaging movie. I mean, at least for me, I found it to be really interesting, both because there's the backstory of like these two individuals who are kind of warring to be the king of Kong, but also because. You see somebody get to a stage maybe that you haven't ever gotten to, and you're like, wow, that's really cool. Or you see somebody, uh, you know, pull off a really difficult move or something like that. And yeah, it becomes this like, okay, I'm not playing, but there's something interesting there for me to watch, nevertheless. Either because I haven't gotten to that point, or it's really impressive, or I I have gotten to that point, needed it better or differently than me, and maybe I can use that the next time I play.
5: Well, and it's super interesting too, Stephanie, because something that you just said made me realize that one of the one of the challenges that we have in game studies, or one of the one of the understudied connections that we have in game studies, is the phenomenology of sports. And so, what you were talking about in terms of access to levels or certain skills, or it's just fun to watch, you really can't say this about the majority of sports games. Like, why do people spend hundreds of dollars to go watch a Patriots game? Mm-hmm. even though they don't play sports anymore and they once played sports and they can talk about uh, the skill involved and they can enjoy the performance of it. And then it's un- if you think about that connection, it becomes unsurprising then that video games have become a competitive sport. And if you want evidence of it becoming a competitive sport beyond just large, large amounts of money at stake, uh, they've started offering sports visas to competitive game players coming to the U.S. for competition play.
1: I love seeing how you switch our games based on what we're talking about. This is really interesting.
0: Uh, so so people who can't see, I'm, I'm trying to to get a game started of, of Tecmo Super Bowl. Uh, when, when you mentioned... Th- Sports made me think about how I don't know much about sports, but I know the 1991 NFL teams really, really well because of this game, which I spent, you know, years, years and years playing. In 1991, I was the exact audience for this. Uh, so, so there's something there about how it, I don't know it, it let me it let me succeed. And this this was a game I was better at than any of my friends, which I wasn't. That that wasn't the case for. For most games, um, and, he, and he, here was a game that that I could excel at when I could not excel on the actual, you know, uh, recess. We went out there and played football all the time, and I was I was the last picked or next to last kind of thing. One one reason I like Mega Man Three is because of the music. I think this is the first first game that I remember really connecting to a to a game's music, and I remember. Um, like kind of almost feeling like there were these, there was natural words that went along with some of these songs, that they were just so, so perfect that there was no way to, to avoid hearing them.
5: If you start looking at kind of con- the convergence of different media and texts, right? Like games and games and poetry, for example, right? Uh, but you can look across games that are really trying to experiment with different types of convergence uh, the path Tale of Tales, The Path is a, is a game that explores uh, female trauma through the parable of Red Riding Hood. And that as you play the game, you come across these snippets of poetry, and the snippets of poetry help you to interpret what's happening in your gameplay choices, right? Or uh, Today I Die, which is a game all about manipulating the pieces of the poem in order to go level to level. It's interesting looking at these old games and kind of seeing how they create this foundation for a lot of the debates that we're having about identity, politics, ideology, misogyny, uh, play as gendered practice uh, debates that we're having now.
0: And, and sometimes I get the sense that that the the emotional connection of some. Of some of the players is is what leads them to to start saying misogynistic things. Kind of this like, no, I I enjoyed that and I had such a good time and there's nothing wrong with me. Therefore, there's nothing wrong with that game. Therefore, we can't critique it. Kind of this this weird logic,
1: or just that I played this game and my identity is wrapped up in being a gamer and you. You play different games, or you don't understand gaming in the same way that I do, and therefore you don't fit this sort of prescribed identity that I have about what a real gamer is. I don't know. We're all
5: gamers, right? The designation of gamer is strange, right? Because we don't have a similar designation for people who read a lot of novels. We don't have one really for people who watch a lot of films. We might have film buff," but that's not quite the same thing. We don't even to have a designation. We can say sports nut for people who like watching sports, but it, it doesn't carry the same identification markers that gamer does. And so gamer is such an interesting rhetorical construction that I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's unique because I don't have enough data points to say that, but it, it is notable and remarkable within games and game culture broadly defined. Well, and it's, it's interesting, too, as, as you bring up the, the analog example versus the digital example and, and how much this, this identity of gamer comes up in and around the digital. Kyle, just this moment, was playing uh, a, a video game version of pinball. Um, and so the, the bleed between these different media is significant, right, that that what is the difference between World of Warcraft and D&D? Automation is the only real difference between it. With pinball, you don't even have automation being the difference between it. It's really just having a computer chip, uh, and a computer chip that determines more, because most pinball machines do have a computer element to it. Um, and so where people start splitting hairs between computer games and video games and analog games is, is interesting, because it starts getting to... A lot, a lot of concerns and anxiety about what it is to be male, to be masculine, uh, to be an, to be an expert at something that's competitive, and so the games in which uh, gamers begin to identify identity are those types of games, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in which masculinity gets to be performed in very particular types of ways. Uh, and so, even if women play those games, they're seen as interlopers, they're seen as cross dressers, they're, they're really targeted out in negative ways. Jenny Hanover's Not in the Kitchen Anymore online installation uh, and archive of all of the abuse that she has suffered um, as a Call of Duty player is a really excellent example of this. Um, And also just the violence that we can look at in our society that often gets correlated with game playing. And I'm going to be very clear in this blog, I have yet to be convinced that there is a correlation. The the research is just not showing this. And so we know based on the research that men and women play games just short of 50-50, right? Uh, And that plenty of women also play violent games. For example, if I go to an arcade, and a time crisis is there, then I will pick up the gun controller and start killing things as quickly as I can. It is my favorite game in an arcade. I love Mortal Kombat. I love to beat people up on Mortal Kombat. Right, or Rampage, right? Like, I like I like those types of games. Yet, when you look at the violence being perpetrated in society, is violence being perpetrated by men in society, even though men and women both have equal access and often play these same games, and so what gets what's happening in and around these identity politics is ignoring much larger cultural trends in and around masculinity, the the convergence of masculinities with technologies um, and the ways in which we've constructed and frustrated those identities.
1: I'm just watching you play this game, thinking about how many thousands of hours I have played Zelda 2, and I still
2: love it.
0: I have a really bad attitude about Zelda 2. I really? I'll pull it out every once in a while, and I'll only with the emulator. I won't play it on the NES because Aww. I
2: want to be able
0: to save state and try that impossible thing over and over and over because it takes me that, that many times to do it.
1: It's yeah. a it's podcast. I can't do that.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, Stephanie, go
5: ahead. Oh, I
1: was just going to say, like, you know, going back to the idea of uh, nostalgia for games, this is, again, one of those that I just played so much when I was younger, and it's just wrapped up in all these memories of being that age and spending that time with the game, and I had my bedroom down in the basement and would just be playing Zelda or Zelda Two for hours and hours and hours, and it's amazing I got any work done, which seems to be a thread still in
5: my life. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a shame that this isn't a video podcast so that people can watch you play, because it's it's almost soporific, right? Like, it, you enter a flow state even as a, as a spectator watching you navigate Zelda Dungeons.
0: That's it's funny. Um, There's that feel of, of <laughs> the materiality of it. I'm, I'm playing on a keyboard, which feels so, so wrong. You know, I'm like, oh, I... I can't. I can't do the things I sh- I would normally be able to do if I if I had my my skills on the on the NES controller.
1: But you know, it's funny because there's so many repeated elements in a game like this, and so you can just kind of watch it and you're like, oh yeah, I remember that or that the little flying skulls that you can't ever actually kill. That you can just
5: stop them for a moment. Well, I think that's also one of the challenges that games have in our culture, right? Like a, a moment ago, Kyle talked about rereading uh, Peter Pan recently and that, you know, when I, I I have two children, they're both six years old and you know, the movies I buy them are the movies that I watched when I was a child and the books that I buy them are the books that I enjoyed as a child, among other things, right? But I there's a definite healthy... Uh, help, I definitely make it accessible to them, like this sort of shared tradition. I read these books, my mother read these books, you will now read these books, and then likewise with other media. I think the challenge that we often run into with games is that they are not playing the games that I played when I was a child. They're playing the games that are contemporary to them, and so while it's Super Mario Galaxy and I played Super Mario Brothers, these are not the same games, and so this, this sense of of you know if I'm thinking about Boyd's concept of you know nostalgia and melancholy right that that we create we create these shared histories and communities in and around nostalgia and the in, in many ways, Boyd is recognizing or is rescuing nostalgia from being like this dirty word in, in academic discourse. of Like nostalgia is a bad thing. It's all about what's happened in the past and the ways that we appropriate it now. It she goes, "Yes, it is, and that 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 has very meaningful and positive effects in our in our culture. That our nostalgia for video games feels very distant. It's very hard to get access to the material." conditions and the material realities that allowed us to experience games in very particular ways. And so I think one of the challenges that we have with games is that it denies tradition and it denies nostalgia. And this is a, only computer games, right? On board games, we play Candyland because I played Candyland, right? And and likewise, I can name more board and card games like that. Uh, and I think that this has real cultural significance, in how our relationship with games will continue to evolve. For a lot of us of a certain age,
1: we can look at you playing NES games, and we can, even if we haven't played the particular game that you are playing, we played games on the Nintendo because there were X number of systems available at that time, right? Or there are enough right. individuals who are able to say, oh, I played on the Atari 2600 as well. I played Frogger or whatever on that. But as more and more systems and more and more games are developed, I wonder if it's just going to be so diffused after a certain point that there's not going to be that ability to say, maybe I never played Castlevania, as you did, but I remember the elements that happened as I played NES games and had to blow the cartridge and all that sort of thing.
0: And I I remember feeling like... I had a pretty good grip on on all games that were out. You know, like I read Nintendo Power, and I and I when when it was just the Nintendo, I, I had a good sense. And I, I opened Castlevania here because uh, when I think of all the Castlevania games now, I I feel so unable to even start to keep track of it. I'm like, wait, they're are on like there's like a the 29th game, and there's this, and there's I, I tried reading a. Um, a timeline of how, how do all these games fit together? A, a few months ago, and it, it was mind blowing to me just how how difficult it felt, and it made me feel very old. I know that's part of it, but it, I I think especially with what we're saying, it, I, I'm nostalgic for a time when when all of the all of the the experiences were more likely to be able to be shared and and kind of grasped in your head at once. There wasn't this. It's the, the difference between going to Spotify and being able to listen to everything I ever want and like having 50 CDs that I know perfectly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They're both good. I both I, I wouldn't say we need to go back or anything. I'm just saying that's part of the nostalgia for me is the completely knowing.
1: And maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe it just is what it
5: is.
0: The games you heard in the background were all from the Nintendo Entertainment System. Adventures of Lolo, Donkey Kong, Tecmo Super Bowl, Mega Man 3, Metroid, Pinball, Contra, Zelda 2 The Adventure of Link, Super Mario Bros. 3, and Castlevania. To learn more about the composers of each of these games' music, because who doesn't want to learn more about that because they're so cool, I recommend the list of games and composers at Overclocked Remix, which you can find at ocremix.org slash system slash NES slash games. I'll post a link in my show notes in the transcript, don't worry. Sadly, Stephanie's NES recently broke, so if you wrap one up and give it to her at a conference or something, I'm sure she'd appreciate it. And that's the end of our show. But it doesn't have to be the end, the end. You know, you can keep up the conversation about anything you heard here on Twitter where I'm at K Stedman and my fantabulous co-editor Stephanie Vai is at digiret. that's D-I-G-I-R-H-E-T. You can ask us anything, you can complain, you can tell us about what the episode made you think of. You can also use the Plugs Play hashtag, and I'll see that too, or as always, you can contact me directly at Pedagogy at writingcommons.org. And are you thinking, well, well, shoot, I don't know why Gaming Pedagogy got like two hours of podcast time and my specialty didn't get a single episode. Well, if that's you, then tell me. I want your voice, I want your contributions, I want your suggestions for interviewees, your particular version of Sonic Madness right here on the show. Please suggest something. You don't want me to just talk about myself all the time, do you? Of course not. Plug's Play Pedagogy is produced in cooperation with Writing Commons and KairosCast, Cast, and it's licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. You heard music from Overclocked Remix over at ocremix.org, including Les Nomes Exotiques by Uboichi, Melancholy Dreams by Vurez, The Eggerlander March by Doc Nano, and Blue Lightning by Disco Dan. This music is all free, and there's 10 years' worth of other video game remixes there for The taking. Check it out. I'm Kyle Stedman from Rockford University, recording in Rockford, Illinois. I'm not sure if I've seen the sun for more than a week in this dreary December, but that is okay. The houses are decorated, they're colorful, they're sparkling, and I just can't get enough of that. And, you know, eggnog. This is Plugs Play Pedagogy.